exactly what she does when he finds out that all of a sudden she's got this child. Don't know if maybe in these sort of elevated kingly households, they don't always interact well. They don't have family dinners together. So it might be a long time. Clearly, the child is weaned by his Hebrew mother first. Might be a long time before they find out. Maybe by the time she just keeps it quiet and keeps him hidden. We don't know. We don't even know what Pharaoh thinks of all of this, but we do know that she pulls it off. Pharaoh's own daughter is going to raise him. He is going to get the best of Egyptian education and privilege. Miriam, his older sister, has the fond work of saying, Mom, your plan worked, and not only did your plan work, but you get to be the one to nurse the child and to raise him. Moses here finds the chief and key problem that he will face throughout the second chapter. He is between two worlds. He's an Egyptian and he's a Hebrew. He is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the son of a Hebrew Levite mother, a child that was marked for death by the very man that he would now be able to call grandfather. But he is also then raised in a house of privilege under the watch care of a princess with all of her resources. The question is, is he Egyptian or is he Hebrew? And this leads to the second point, and that is the hero's crucible. He will have to figure out who he is. Is he Egyptian or is he Hebrew? Every key decision in a superhero's life is made along these lines. Will they keep their powers hidden and secret and join them only for themselves or will they use them for the greater good at personal cost? Moses, it seems, is walking around one day and witnesses one of the Hebrew people getting beaten. Certainly, he acts rashly. It's unlikely that Moses wouldn't have seen something like this before. We learn from the book of Acts that Moses is around 40. He's about my age. As being around 40, he has certainly seen his people being mistreated before. He's seen them treated ruthlessly. This is not the first time he has seen an Egyptian beat a Hebrew. What is different about this, it's hard to say. Whether it finally broke him, whether he finally realized truly what was going on. I I doubt all of that. I think he just, frankly, had opportunity. He looks around. He knows that or thinks that no one is there. And he takes out vengeance on this Egyptian. This is going to begin a pattern three times we read in this chapter of Moses interceding for those who seem to be oppressed, who seem to be taken advantage of by the powers of the world and stepping in and doing what he thinks is right for that. But even here at the same time, it's clear that he is not ready to actually invoke any sense of justice in the situation. He's not taking on the system. He isn't taking the fight to Pharaoh. He doesn't go to granddad and say, listen, pops, this is wrong what you are doing. He doesn't talk to his Egyptian mother about this. In fact, this this entire sort of heroic stance of justice, even, even this sort of perverted justice that he gives here is comically cowardice. He does it, in a sense, to provide justice, but no one gets to see that justice. If it works, no one's there to see it. The Egyptians' family doesn't know where he's gone. They just know that he didn't come home. The Egyptians themselves have no idea what happened to this man. 
The Hebrews don't think that, that he was necessarily killed because of the evil that he has done. Maybe he just left with his mistress for Thebes or something like that. Who knows? Is justice really served in the dark? More than that, Moses seems very unwilling, at the very least, to suffer for the justice he wants, which is exactly what happens the next day. He goes out and he, again, intercedes. Two Hebrews are fighting. He turns to the one in the wrong. Why are you striking your brother? The man looks at him and very simply says, who are you to be our judge? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? What gives you the right to be a judge over us? What gives you the authority to set us straight? Moses wants to declare himself to be a Hebrew. But to those Hebrews who have stood under only oppression, who only know the authority of the oppressor, he sounds just like every other Egyptian. So he runs. Pharaoh will indeed find out, and Pharaoh will indeed seek his life. So he runs. And he doesn't run a little bit. If you've got a, a map in the back of your Bible, you can look and try and find where Midian is. So Midian is not just across the Red Sea into the Arabian Peninsula. It is all the way across the Arabian Peninsula and then across the Gulf of Aqaba. It is a long ways away. Moses didn't just run. He ran and ran and ran like he was singing for a flock of seagulls. And then again, he finds people being oppressed. He sits down by a well and what do you know? People come to water their flocks and these other shepherds taking advantage likely of the fact that these were shepherdesses. They were women who were watering Ruel's flocks seek to cut in line and to cut them off, and Moses sets them straight. This must be a typical thing for them to be so poorly treated out in the wilderness. Ruel is surprised by their quick return. He's a good host, and he asks Moses to come down, sit, and eat with us. And the word in verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. That one meal turned into two turned into four, turned into eight, and soon he was invited to simply stay. And Moses was content. What Moses looks upon with contentment, the scriptures seem to look on with contempt. He is no longer worried about the people. He is no longer worried about their oppression. He is only worried about himself. Throughout this second chapter, we have almost a continual string of failures by Moses. He seems to have the desire, at least initially, to provide justice for his people, and now he has all but abandoned them. He's not just away while the heat cools off. He's not just away waiting for the death of this Pharaoh. He is away now, it seems, for good. It seems like he has given up the one thing that he had a passion for, the one hope that the Israelites seem to have set up here in Scripture has failed them. And this then turns to our third point, which is the hero's loneliness. Who is Moses? I think initially, primarily because we know where the story is going, we want to say he's a Hebrew. He seems to be a Hebrew. He's born into a Levite family. Hebrew mother loved him and cared for him. But then the book of Exodus does a brilliant job in the second chapter of whipping us back and forth between Moses being a Hebrew and being an Egyptian. Born to Hebrew parents, he is nevertheless raised in an Egyptian house, given wisdom and education of the Egyptians. 
As he gets older, he seems to be a Hebrew again and fighting against the Egyptians, giving justice against them to their oppressed people. But then he seems to be an Egyptian, rejected by the Hebrews as just another man in authority over them. Then he seems to be a Hebrew, running from Pharaoh yet again under threat of his life yet again. The last thing we hear about him is that, frankly, he seems to be an Egyptian. When Ruel asks, what happened? The daughters respond very clearly, an Egyptian delivered us. Moses seems to exist in two worlds, and therefore he belongs to none. It's not just our reading of the text that would lead us to think that Moses just doesn't quite have a home. Even as he's making a home, he takes Zipporah as his wife. She bears him a child. The naming of that child is incredibly important. He says, his name shall be Gershom, which sounds a lot like I'm a sojourner. What he means by this is not just I was a Hebrew in a foreign land, just as I'm a Hebrew in a foreign land now, I'm waiting to go back to Canaan. No, I think it means much more than that. I think what Moses means is I don't have a home. I will forever be a sojourner in someone else's land. Even now with an adopted family, Moses will always be a bit out of place. He seems to want to leave that life behind forever. He makes no plans to go back. He settles down. He's content. If he was going to be a hero, he seems to have given up on that. Chapter 2, frankly, paints a devastating picture of Moses. He is set up at the very beginning, especially coming off of the, the great proclamation of Pharaoh that all the male children should die, and yet here is one who makes it. The Scripture's claim is set aside. After all, although Miriam will be named, although both of Moses' parents will be named, although Moses had an older brother that isn't even mentioned in this, this whole ordeal, Moses himself will receive a name here, meaning that he is chosen, he's picked out, he is indicated as somebody of grave importance. He is put in a place of influence, but now simply runs from the privilege and the responsibility and the justice that he himself thought he could give. The second chapter is a picture of futility and absolute failure. Not brings us to the fourth point this morning, that is the Hebrews, the hero's power. The hero's power. Moses has lost much, but he hasn't lost the very thing that would make him a hero. Unlike all of the other heroes that we talk about, Moses' power was never in himself. It was never in Moses' ability as a speaker and Moses' ability as a leader that he was ever going to be the hero that the Israelites wanted or needed. Moses was never truly the hero that they had to have. The hero they need is more than Moses can be. His power was never in his birth or his abilities. It was always from God. His birth and his rescue was no less from the hand of God than was Noah's. The circumstances may have been different, but the text is pleading with us to see that the providence of God kept him and saved him. This basket that mom put him in was not just a basket. <clears throat> it was a boat. As a matter of fact, 
the word who is, that, that's used here is used in only one other section of text, although it's used repeatedly in that section of text in the Scripture. Only one other place. That place is Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. That text refers to this basket as nothing less than the ark. Noah, in order to save humanity, is placed in an ark, taken through the waters of judgment, and left safe on the other side. It's precisely what happens to Moses. Moses, although God seems to play a less obvious role in his salvation and keeping him alive, Moses is kept alive by the very hand of God. It was God's good purpose to save him. But Moses clearly was not going to be able to do this on his own. He, he may have saved one. <clears throat> he may have provided justice for one person, but there are multitudes of Hebrews. He shows that he has some ability to step in for small groups of people, but how is one man to take on the entirety of the world's strongest superpower on his own? He takes the opportunity to run. The cries of people come up to God. God heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. Four things. The end of text tells us that God does. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. He hears their cries. He remembers his promises and his covenant that he made with them. He sees his people and their oppression. And God knew. What a wonderful way to end that passage. And God knew pleading with us to fill in what he knew. What did God know? We, we're told what he, what he sees. We're told what he remembers. We're told what he hears, but we're not told what he knows. Because God knows everything. He knew that it was time to act. He knew whom he would use to act. He knew what he was going to do. And he knew how it all was going to end. You see, that is the true power of Moses. It wasn't that Moses was a tremendous man in and of himself. It wasn't that he had a backbone of steel. It wasn't that he was a great orator. It wasn't that he was strong as an ox. It was simply this. Moses would be used by God. And that was enough. His true power wasn't his identity as either a Hebrew or an Egyptian. It wasn't his closeness with Pharaoh's family. It wasn't the fact that eventually his brother was going to sit on the throne. It wasn't his might, but simply put, it was God. Moses is an absolute nobody. But he happens to be God's nobody. Moses ran from his problems. God will make him face them and be victorious over them. Moses doesn't know who he is, but fortunately God does. God being with Moses is what Israel is going to need to be freed from the oppression of the Egyptians. But what they will eventually need is someone more than that. Not just someone whom God can work through, but rather a man that God can dwell in. A man who will seek justice, not just for one, but for all, who will not run from the suffering that needs to happen for God's people, but will stand and will suffer for them, 
who can take on a superpower much greater than Egypt and even Rome on his own? The greatest superpower the world refuses to acknowledge even though they languish all peoples under his oppression? What they need is they need Jesus. They need Jesus to forgive their sins by his blood, to win victory over an insurmountable odd, to give them a home, a kingdom, and new hearts. That is the hero that they need. We are like nobodies. We are like Moses in that we are nobodies. You're not famous. You're not important. But you're his nobodies. We have limited power. Jesus has it all. We have limited authority, but Jesus has it all. We have limited resources, but everything belongs to him. So if Jesus is for us, what can possibly stop his church from marching forward with what he has called us to do? Friends, if you truly believe that Jesus has overcome the world, if you understand well the commission that he has given to us, to make disciples of all nations, to bring people under the banner of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his glories to those in high places and those in low places, you will come quickly to a realization that unless Jesus is the one who leads us, who directs us, who gives us continual grace and mercy, that far from overcoming the world, far from being forgiven from our sins, this world will never, ever truly know the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. So we are called to be heroes. Not like the heroes in the mythologies and adventurers and pioneers that form and shape America's mythos, but rather exactly the opposite kind of heroes. Those who are small, insignificant, powerless, and incapable, so that all might know where our power lies. In the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, And in the Spirit of God, Jesus gives us a heart for the work. Jesus gives us power for the work. Jesus gives us grace for the work. He gives us efficacy in the work. He gives us victory in the work. So friends, let's trust in God and do the work. Let's pray. Almighty God, what amazing things you have done through your people in this world. It is difficult to imagine the world, especially as we who live in America, imagine our world not formed by your church. Yet we largely overlook it. We see the problems of this world, its sin and its ugliness, and we feel at times despondent and overwhelmed by the issues that arise even within your church, let alone the culture outside of it. All the more then, let us trust that you are moving. Trust that you still lead your people. And trust that your will can never be thwarted. May your will be done, our Father, on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord for our good and for his glory. Amen.